Ok, parfait. You make a hundred new cards every day? No, 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 no. Review like a hundred pieces of my previous data, ah, okay. facts I've read in papers, things I learned in talks. But how often do you add a new card? Oh, probably a couple every day. Either a piece of data or something interesting I read in an article or in a talk. Did you develop that yourself? I did. In fact, my family makes fun of me. They're like, oh, there's Caroline in the corner with her flashcards again. <laughs> Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Caroline Bartman is a postdoctoral fellow in the chemistry department at Princeton University. Caroline's research focuses on how our metabolism changes in response to cancer. Prompted by the pandemic, she has also turned her attention to studying how our metabolism changes in response to viral infections. Before all of that, she received her PhD in immunology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she studied transcriptional bursts in a series of influential papers. And in the fall of 2023, Caroline, you're going to start your own lab at the University of Pennsylvania, which is quite exciting. I'm very excited. And Caroline, we're also excited that you're here with us today. And so given that you're still early in your career, can you still remember how your creativity as a scientist developed? You know, others, present company included, may not remember, but you, <laughs> you could remember. How did you become creative in science? That is such a good question because I think when I started science, I felt I was not creative at all. And I was really worried about this. I was like, how do people think of these amazing ideas, these interesting projects? I really think scientific creativity is something that can be developed over time. And, you know, going to lab meetings, seeing other people work through their very early work and make decisions. Is this project interesting? Is it not? Is this data biologically important or not, really helps strengthen that muscle and improve your judgment, I think. So I hope I'm maybe more creative now than I was when I first started doing science. But did you realize how important creativity is right from the start? I think so. I have always thought, and I think my first mentor kind of described to me that there are two aspects of being a great scientist. One is being very, very good experimentally, having all your experiments work the way you wanted. But the other side is thinking of important questions, thinking of interesting approaches. And that side I would really describe as creativity. And, you know, when I started in lab, I was very bad at experiments and also not good <laughs> thinking of amazing ideas. <laughs> so I really um, thought I would be a failure. <laughs> but as time has gone on, it's become a little bit easier. You mentioned that the group meeting was a forum where you see how ideas develop, how people think of ideas as interesting or not interesting. Can you recall specific atmospheres of group meetings that helped shape your creativity? Definitely. Yeah, I think group meeting is so important because each of our projects moves slowly, right? So if you're right. only learning creativity from your own choices or mm -hmm. advice you get on your project, you'll make a choice every three years. So I think it's important to see other people go through this process. So for myself, I think one example that really stands out to me is in graduate school, I had written my first paper. I was casting around for a new project. 
And I came up with a project that I really loved. Mm-hmm. And my two mentors hated this project. <laughs> and they finally got my PhD committee to have an intervention and say, Caroline, the effect sizes are very small. And also, we don't think this particular approach to this question is interesting. So actually, it doesn't work on either level. You know, I was very uh, reluctant to give up this idea that I had thought of and loved so much. But that was really important for me to step back and say, you really have to evaluate objectively the biological interest and also the experimental effect size. And that was a moment when I had to judge myself more harshly and think more critically going forward about my projects. And then in the end, you didn't do that particular project? Correct. I switched to a a new approach. (laughs) Yes. I mean, on the one hand, of course, it's important to think about whether you have the tools to answer a question, right? whether the effect size is large enough so that you'll actually be able to measure it, for example. But then on the other hand, and this is something that came up in previous podcast episodes again and again, on the other hand, it's really important that you're excited about something. And it doesn't really matter so much if the other people around you don't fully share that excitement. So, you know, in terms of the technical difficulty, I think it was probably a good decision to cancel that project. But in terms of them not being interested, maybe that wasn't so important. Well, I think it's always a balance. Yes, I agree with you. Of course, everyone will say, well, I'm just a misunderstood genius. And right. you know, <laughs> Einstein also was a patent clerk and not appreciated. But for every Einstein, there are also nine patent clerks with bad ideas. So <laughs> it's a balance. Like if someone tells you no, and you feel inside yourself, no, I really think there's something there that they're not appreciating then that Mm -hmm. really tells you something. Versus if someone tells you no and they explain their reasoning, you might say, well, I see what you're saying. Maybe my efforts are better spent on a different Mm -hmm. project. You know, the Irish have a saying, if 10 people tell you that you're drunk, sit down. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Where I thought you were going with this story was that, you you know, you prove them all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Not in this case, no. (laughs) No, but but of course, a majority of what we do in science is failures and is projects that we cancel at some point because they're not leading somewhere. So it can't be all success stories, I guess. So did you experience that you also need to be creative in order to make the decision to stop working on a project? Yes, I think so. I think that's also something that maybe people don't initially appreciate about scientific creativity. You know, conceiving a project is a huge creative step, of course, but also every decision you make along the way can be creative. Like, what does this data mean? What should be my next step? How could this relate to other important biological questions? And in stopping a project, I think you also want to consider where am I going to spend my time instead of this, you know? So that's also an aspect of creativity. Yeah. And I definitely agree with you that the conception of the project is not the only creative step. There's creativity all along the way. I think killing the project is an extreme example of creativity along the way. But what guides your decision, would you say, throughout the project? Like, how do you know when a change in the project is maybe too extreme, maybe you don't want to go in this direction? Do you have a kind of uh, intuitive sense that you use a particular protocol? Like maybe you ask many people, how do you shepherd the project? Yeah. One thing that I do in general to help 
creativity, but in particular to think about my own data is that I actually use flashcards and review flashcards. So say you do an experiment and you get a piece of data, but the moment that you finally finish analyzing that data, like maybe you just want dinner, you've been working all day. (laughs) I think it's really important for me to come back to it another day or several more days in the future and think, what did this really mean? What did I expect to see going in versus what does this pattern of data look like? How does it relate to previous experiments? I also have flashcards for interesting things in the literature or in my colleagues' data that maybe aren't useful this moment, but could end up being useful in future. So that is a way for me to go back and reflect on what could be the most important next steps? What could be the big biological questions that this data could point towards? So when you say flashcards, how do I have to think about that? It's actually this program called Anki that I think medical students use to <laughs> memorize a bunch of facts. Uh-huh. Cool. But yeah, I do, you know, like a hundred of these little flashcards a day. And you make a hundred new cards every day? No, 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 no. Review like a hundred pieces of my previous data, oh, okay. facts I've read in papers, things I learned oh, in talks. But how often do you add a new card? Oh, probably a couple every day, either a piece of data or something interesting I read in an article or in a talk. That's fascinating. So every day you add two cards and you review essentially all of them. Uh, (laughs) Not even all of them. (laughs) I have a few thousand at this point, actually. (laughs) Isn't it a bit difficult to keep track of all those cards? I mean, it sounds a bit chaotic, to be honest. It is. And I don't use it like a med student does. You know, I don't require perfect memorization. But sometimes you did an experiment a year ago, and it didn't really relate to anything. And at least for myself, maybe I forget that experiment, or I forget exactly how every experimental condition looked. But maybe I see that again a year later. And at that time, it's relevant to something I've done recently. You know what it reminds me of when someone asks you a puzzle, and it sounds impossible, and you're trying to solve this puzzle, you ask them to repeat the puzzle, and you go through it word by word, and you just keep going through the statement. Like different ways of breaking down the puzzle, exactly. Yeah, like you remind yourself of what all the pieces are. I think that's fascinating. I haven't heard that trick before, Caroline. <laughs> that's no. a great one. Have you yeah, heard did, of that? Though, no, no, I haven't heard of that. Did you develop that yourself? I did. In fact, my family makes fun of me. They're like, oh, <laughs> there's Caroline in the corner with her flashcards again. <laughs> is it a physical set of cards or is it uh, It's software? digital. It's on the digital. computer. I mean, okay. where it started was, so for, as you said, I studied transcription for my PhD and I switched to metabolism for my postdoc. So at that time, there was a lot of actual rote memorization I had to do, like Mm -hmm. the reactions of glycolysis. So that is where it started with true flashcards, but it's developed into this process I use to think about my projects. I really like that. I mean, this idea that you get random reminders of things that you thought about and that you found interesting a while ago. I think that's really cool. Do you ever go to see one card and realize, oh my God, I think it's wrong. Like that's a Yes. It's a false assumption. It does happen. Yeah. The weird thing about the metabolism field is that there was beautiful metabolism work in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And then everyone became fascinated with the molecular biology revolution, which is great, whatever, genes. But <laughs> metabolism kind of languished for a few years. And now at least a few labs, you might say, are rediscovering it. 
And so this means there was a lot of very beautiful work. There's just so much, and it's from 40 years ago, and you can't search words because it's not digitized. So sometimes these findings from many years ago may contradict something that we kind of take as gospel in the field. So I think, as you say, another important aspect of this review is to find contradictions or gaps in what we think we know that actually we don't understand as well as we think and we should probably address experimentally. So do you also use these flashcards in connection with other people? I mean, do you discuss with people your flashcards or is that an activity that, you know, Caroline just does in her corner? I think it's private. I'm guessing I think it's, it's private. more private. I would say <laughs> discussing data with people is another independent, very important activity, especially with lab mates or people who really understand your work. I'm a maybe solitary person and I like to think about my flashcards by myself. But whenever <laughs> I have a challenge or a question and I talk to my lab mates, they always come up with perspectives I'm not expecting. And it really enriches the process of developing your project further, I find. Yeah, I have to agree that the great benefit of talking to others is you, know, you tell them the same thing that you tell yourself, and yet they put it through their mindset and they come up with something that, in retrospect, you can't believe you didn't think of yourself. It was right there in front of you, but they say it. Maybe eventually chat GPT can serve this function, but for now, <laughs> just lab mates. <laughs> and can you then learn how to channel the mindset of others? I think one great benefit of working with others is you sort of learn to think like they do. And then you put on your PhD mentor hat and think like they always think about a problem. Yes, I do think of PIs and trainees kind of like people and dogs in the 101 Dalmatians, where if you train <laughs> with someone for long enough, you start to look yeah. like them mentally. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I would phrase it in a different way. I think during the process of training, you learn what you like. And sometimes you see the choices someone made and you're like, that is not what I would have done in this scenario. You know, I think this fact is interesting and I would have taken it in this direction. And I think those disagreements are equally as important as when you see someone and they made a really interesting choice and they did something unexpected. So I think the process of training is learning your own judgments and own opinions and strengthening those. So... You're going to start your own lab relatively soon. What is the thing you are looking forward to the most when you'll become a PI? Yes, I think it's both a challenge and an opportunity, which is that my lab's amazing, you know, but I'm used to talking to the people in my lab and having the support of a PI whose judgment helps shape projects. Like all of a sudden, that's me and then a bunch of new people that I haven't yet met. <laughs> And I think how to convince people that my ideas are an interesting question, or of course, ultimately, they'll have ideas of what they think is interesting and how they are going to shape the projects. I mean, you're basically setting up a new scientific community, which is very daunting, but also very exciting. What do you think your approach is going to be when you mentor your students for creativity? Great question. <laughs> Actually, I recently spoke to a PI, Mustafa Mir, who started his lab a couple years ago. And he said what he liked to do initially is have a chat with the whole lab every day where they could just ask questions. 
Oh, all together or individually? All together, right, as a whole lab, but very informal. And they could ask, you know, what is this metabolic reaction? Or why are we doing this project this way? Or (laughs) what does this paper in the literature mean? You know, just informal, because people feel nervous to ask such questions. But if you wait a year to ask this question, it's going to be a big problem, right? Right, right, yeah. And I think what's nice is when you first start your lab, it seems that the overall theme is the whole lab act as one. They all have a common judgment. But over time, what tends to happen, we talked recently to Stuart Firestein from Columbia, and he said that he likes to ignore, how did he put it, Martin? He likes to neglect, he likes to neglect his students. (laughs) (laughs) He's later in his career, and he likes to give them more freedom. So it's interesting how there are these two styles. You know, sometimes... Micromanaging is great at the beginning. You're all work towards a common goal. And I think that's quite exciting. But it does change over time, perhaps. Understood. And as much as I'm sure I'll be stressed and want to keep an eye on how projects are going, I do think that giving some independence and space to try different things is important for building the trainees' creativity and building their own sort of enthusiasm and ownership of the project. So, Caroline, you talked about the flashcards, which I am so motivated to try now. <laughs> I really want to do that. I think it will help me on a couple of projects. Is there something about the process that you go through as you meditate on these cards? <laughs> Is there a form of thinking that you could put your finger on that you carry out in your mind that helps you figure out what the next direction will be? It's interesting that you phrase it as meditation, because I do think that another thing that is really challenging for me and everyone is, you know, we have so many tasks and they're a compulsion to check things off the to-do list. But I think to make progress on projects, a lot of times you really need that protected quiet time just to do nothing. And sometimes you'll have that quiet time and you won't think of any good ideas, but you have to just accept that. Because if you feel pressure or have to move on, then you won't have the freedom to make these odd connections that you might want to make. This quiet time, some people call that time for incubation, which is a very important phase of any kind of creativity. Is that something that you consciously build into your daily routine? I do. Yes. I think it's really important. I think the quiet incubation and another thing I think is important is then describing the stage of the project to someone else. Because in that description, you can tell, oh, this doesn't make any sense the way I was thinking about it. Or what would I say the main goal of this project is? It really helps you formulate and refocus. So I guess this kind of fits into you guys' paradigm of day science versus night science. Like the explanation maybe is the day science organized way, and then you need a unattached part just to make new connections. So you consciously divide your time into a day science mode and a night science mode, or is it mixed together, jumbled up? I think I try to make time for night science in every day. Then there's day science, and then there's actually doing day-to-day experiments. This stage of my career is odd, right? My postdoc paper was just accepted, so now... I am trying congratulations. to... Congratulations. Thank yeah, congratulations. you. Very excited. Yeah. Hopefully awesome. she should come out in the next couple months. So now I actually have eight months where I'm trying to start a few new projects or think of ideas that 
can ideally serve as the foundation for my new lab. So I'm really thoughtful. This is a great time for me to be on this podcast because I'm trying to think of interesting ideas that will be valuable for my independent work. When you're in this phase now of ideation, of trying to come up with new projects, are you trying to get inspiration and ideas from other fields? What's your relationship to the discipline that you're in versus the whole world of ideas? Yes. You know, I think both. I think some scientists are very focused and some are interested in everything. I tend to be more interested in everything, which can be a curse (laughs) because you never specialize in one thing. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, I see many interesting things in different fields. I think reading out of field is so interesting and it's really energizing because you can come up with things that, oh, really no one in my field is thinking about this. You know, some people are very focused on one scientific question and will use any technique. Or some people have one approach that's so powerful and they end up studying a wide range of things. So I think either approach can work. So I have to say, I really envy you for this phase that you're in where you finished one project and now you have the freedom to decide what are the things that you want to work on in the future. So how do you make that decision? I mean, you just read very broadly and see what inspires you? Yes, well... Inspiration would be, I guess, the first step, but I think for it to be a good project for me personally, I need to think about what experiments are my strength, like measuring metabolic flux, how, which question can that contribute towards and which question is this going to give us new understanding? So there are many things that could be interesting for someone to do, but some of them I have to say, it's not for me, unfortunately. And then the other thing that I'm trying to do is at least try a pilot experiment because I'll have a brand new lab, people who are learning new techniques and who would love to hit the ground running. I had an amazing undergrad during my postdoc and I put him on a very technically challenging project and he had great hands. He was amazing, but it took us like a year to get usable data just because it was technically challenging. So I think that is an example of a project has to work on a interesting biological question level, but it also has to work on a, I'd like to get some data this month level. Yeah, in a sense, science is, as Peter Medawar said, the art of the soluble. You need to work on a project that you can make some progress on. Exactly. All there's something to be said for also working on kind of seemingly impossible one where maybe you'll only reap the fruits after a few years, but it will be very tasty fruit. Or, I mean, another strategy, me as a lazy person, I keep that insoluble project in mind and just keep going Mm. back to it and say like, oh, well, has some technology come up that would now make this easier suddenly? It'll be somewhere on your flashcards and just pop up every year. I'm thinking more about your flashcards. I find it such an interesting idea. And I think if we were to think about what makes it work, why is it that it's useful? It must be because the human brain is not perfect, right? If you had a perfect brain, you wouldn't need to remind yourself of things. You just would know them. So the flashcards remind you of things and therefore correct for limited memory. And that kind of brings to mind the notion that our brains are full of other limitations, other biases, 
And I'm wondering if in your creative process, do you have forms of correcting for other kinds of brain limitations, other kinds of biases? I mean, a bias that I always have is I tend to have a much better memory for my experiments that succeeded than ones that failed. <laughs> and a couple times in like my- Like a true optimist. I really am. Several times <laughs> in my PhD, I would suggest doing X experiment and my PI would say, you did that six months ago. <laughs> it did it not go. have you an interesting result. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Limited memory could be a blessing. <laughs> I mean, as scientists, we all have to have limited memories for our- failures and struggles in a way to keep hoping that things are going to work out. (laughs) Yeah, just to survive. Overall, do you think optimism is required for creativity? I do. I think optimism is required for all science. And that is something I hope to emulate as a PI that my previous PIs have really had, which is you generate some data, you feel, oh, may not be that interesting. I don't know. And they say, looks amazing. This is so interesting. (laughs) And that really jogs your brain to think, well, how could it be interesting? Could it really lead me to an important understanding? So Caroline, as we start to wrap up, I'm thinking, are there any topics that we didn't cover that you want to tell us about regarding your creative process? There was one thing that I was going to bring up Maybe one reason that I'm so obsessed with this dichotomy between something that's biologically interesting and then something that works on a technical data level is that I feel I'm very bad at experiments. Like, you know, they talk yeah, you about people. This. <laughs> yes, they talk about people with golden hands. I have friends <laughs> like that. I am not that person, <laughs> which is frustrating. But I think it has some benefits in that. Mm, I focus on projects that are very reproducible and where the experiment is somewhat simple to do. Because for a good project, your core observation, your key experiment, you're going to need to repeat it a number of times, modulate Mm -hmm. different factors, do it in different systems. So in a way, I'm obsessed with the idea that your first observation, it has to be easy to do. It can't be a week-long experiment that you're going to do hundreds of times, either your future results will be underpowered, or you'll spend five years doing a project. So I think my failure to do experiments easily leads me to value things that are technically reproducible and easy to generate. Do you think it only lets you value those types of experiments? Or do you think you also get ideas for other types of experiments because you're aware of these factors? There are projects that I would love to do, but are very challenging and time consuming. That is one reason I'm super excited to be a PI because I do think that that will help me fight those tendencies because I can encourage someone else to do it. (laughs) I think this limitation in doing experiments, this kind of constraint makes you more creative because you now have to get around that. And also maybe it prevents you from falling into this rabbit hole of just perfecting a certain experimental method when really your time could be best spent in thinking of ideas. So I think maybe it's your superpower (laughs) to not have the experimental superpower. (laughs) Okay, well, that is a positive way of looking at it. I like that. Yeah, I'm kind of an optimist. Yes, yes, yes. I think that's actually a perfect way to end this conversation with your secret superpower of not having 
the superpower of experiment. <laughs> Caroline, this was fascinating. I think we covered so much ground and I learned a lot, especially about the flashcards that I'm going to look up this on-key business. Yeah, yeah. I'm also tempted now to have those flashcards. I think it's a fantastic idea. <laughs> Thanks. I love it. <laughs> Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you both. This thank has you. been so great. 